Our text this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're looking at the subject, the joy of resurrection. Verse 12 says, If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? This is Paul writing to the church at Corinth. Yes, I did say the church at Corinth, that among that group of people, there were some skeptics. And so he poses this question. If it is preached, then how can some of you say that the resurrection has not occurred? Sometimes in the Greek language, Greek is what the New Testament was written in, sometimes in the Greek language, an if statement, like we have here, indicates certainty or fact, not doubt, not conjecture. This is what we have here. Verse 12. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, is not a uh, statement of doubt. He is not saying, if this were, were preached, but I'm not sure it was. That's not what the apostle is saying. In actuality, these third-class if clauses, that's what they're called in Greek, affirm what is being said instead of throwing doubt on it. They could, therefore, be rendered with the word since, S-I-N-C-E, and still make perfect sense. So, let's give it a try. Since it is preached that Christ Jesus has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? You see, it makes perfect sense. And by the way, the English language uses the word if in similar constructs. I could say, if you're going camping with the group going to Colorado, be sure to take along warm clothing. Now, if we had a sign-up sheet on the board out here, and I saw your name on that board, and I made this statement to you, the use of the word if would not be interpreted by you as doubting your intent. It would simply be a matter of information. Since you are going camping in Colorado, be sure to take along some warm clothes. So we do it in English as well. Now the question comes, how do we know when an if clause is being used to throw doubt on something? If it snows heavily in Colorado over the weekend, I'm not going on the trip. See, now that is throwing doubt on it. But how do we know that when we read a Bible text? How do we know that it is affirming, since it is preached, that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Well, any first-year Bible student could answer this question. So you're all, on, you're all in trouble this morning. Here goes. The most important rule of interpreting the meaning of Scripture is... Say it. Context. Say, what in the world is context? Context. The verses in the larger narrative that surround this statement. Here's the statement again. 
if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead. What is the context? Now you've got to look at the text. Look here at 1 Corinthians 12 and following. What is the context of that statement? Look at verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. How so? Because resurrection has been what Paul has been preaching. That's why. So that's an affirmative statement, not using an if clause, but it's context around the if clause statement. Or again, look at verse 15. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. So here in context, we learn, we learn something about the doctrines that Paul preached. The context then affirms that the doctrine of resurrection had been part of the gospel message that Paul and his companions preached at Corinth. This removes all conjecture in the statement, verse 12, if it is preached. Well, guess what? It was preached. He's not throwing doubt on the situation. And so it can be translated, since Christ has been preached. And you know that he has. Because that is what? I have preached. Now, beyond this immediate context, which helps to clarify what Paul is saying, we may appeal to the larger context of Scripture to see if the doctrine of the resurrection was standard fare in gospel preaching done by the Apostle Paul. When he went about doing church planning, other than Corinth, this is Corinth, but what about other places? What did he preach? Do we have any evidence in Scripture? Well, yeah, we have a wealth of information. For example, in Athens. Now, Athens is just 30 miles from Corinth. It's down there on the same Greek peninsula, right down there on the tip of the Greek peninsula. Paul was reasoning with the Greek philosophers on Mars Hill. And we read, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Now they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, well, we want to hear you again on this subject. Acts 17, verse 18, verse 32. So we have at least found another place where Paul preached the gospel. And in preaching the gospel, he brings up the subject of Jesus and the resurrection. After returning to Palestine from his missionary journey, he was arrested by the Jewish authorities and summoned before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. We read then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others were Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, and I stand on trial because of my hope 
in the resurrection of the dead. And when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Acts 23, verse 6 through 8. So, here he's giving his defense before the Jewish council. And he says, the reason I'm here, guys, the reason I've been arrested is because of preaching. And what have I been preaching? I've been preaching about Jesus and the resurrection, and you guys don't like that. When Paul's trial moved from the religious courts to the secular courts, he was brought before Governor Felix of Rome. Paul said of his accusers, They cannot prove to you the charges that they're now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, that's the Jesus way, which they call a sect, S-E-C-T. I believe everything that agrees with the law and there is written it, and what is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Acts 24, verse 13 through 15. So before the secular court, he brings the subject up again. The reason I'm here is because of what I believe and teach about resurrection. And then in the little book of Philippians, chapter 3, verse 10, we have Paul's personal testimony. It's okay what he's preaching to other, others, but what does he personally believe? We would hope that preachers would uh, preach what they themselves believe. And so he affirms here in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings because becoming like Him in His death. That's my goal. That's what I want. I want to know the power of His resurrection. Now you see, this is overwhelming evidence that wherever Paul went, his message of salvation included teaching on the resurrection. This being so, the statement to the Corinthian church must be an affirmative statement. Since it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, and you know I preach this to you, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? <coughs> it's a good question with which to begin his discourse. I like this about Paul. <coughs> Excuse me. He just jumps right into it. If this is what has been preached, and how is it? Some of you are off the wall with regard to this. Where, you know, you weren't listening, you weren't paying attention, oh, worse, maybe, <coughs> maybe you don't believe what I preached. Hmm. More serious. Now that brings us in our bulletin outline then to the second point, the importance of the resurrection. Well, to say that there is no resurrection is tantamount to calling the apostles, not only Paul, but apostles, plural, Peter and all the rest, calling them liars. 
Look at verse 15. We are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. You say, aha, now I get it. The only reason Paul is arguing for the resurrection is because his reputation is on the line as a person who may have misspoke for God. And he's trying to save face. Well, if that's what you think, I can categorically state, no, you don't get it. <laughs> that's not it at all. Paul could care less about what you think of him or what the Corinthian believers thought. He is arguing for the doctrine of resurrection because it is essential, may I say 100% essential, to your salvation and therefore should not be taken lightly. Look at verse 13 and 14. If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And here it is. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. Okay. But, next statement, so is your faith. Useless faith. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 13 and 14. Consider these two arguments. What if Christ has not been raised from the dead? Because he raises that. Verse 25 and 26, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is, faith, is, is death. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25. Well, if he hasn't been raised from the dead, has death been destroyed? Have all the enemies been conquered? Contrary to what some in the world are saying these days about death, death being a friend, especially if one is suffering from a painful and terminal illness, God says the direct opposite. He says that death is your enemy. Verse 25. And like all enemies, if Jesus is going to be your Savior in the full and final sense, He has to defeat this enemy. He must defeat it. Now if you're honest, there are many people, maybe you too, who are afraid to die. Why are they afraid? Why are you afraid to die? Look at verse 55 and verse 56. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Ooh. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. <coughs> and primarily the broken law. <coughs> Fear of death has two prongs of terror. The first prong is this. It may win. It may win. Think about that. <coughs> what if death gains the victory? Verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep, that's just a euphemism for death, those that have died are what? What's the next word? Lost. Lost. 
Ooh, that's a sober word. Brethren, there is a death behind the death. What the Bible calls the second death. Let me read it for you. Then death and hell were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Revelation 20, verse 14. No one wants to go there, I can tell you. I would be afraid of death too if that were my destination. Those who laugh and joke about hell not only show their ignorance, but they're playing right into the devil's hands who has no intention of relinquishing his control over men. And so he puts blinders on them. The first prong concerning death is what if it wins? What if it wins? That'll create terror. The second prong of terror in death is its sting. You have all been stung by a bee, I'm sure. A hornet or whatever. There are other kinds of stings that are more poisonous. What a stingray, you know, in the ocean, so forth. People have been stung by that. Here he's talking about the sting of death. And then he explains it. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. That is the broken law. What, what the sting is, that we break God's law, and then there's a sting for that. There's a penalty for that. People are deluding themselves to think that they deserve eternal life. Paul is saying that death comes your way and mine because of sin, because you have broken God's law. So sin has a claim on you. It has a case. And you have no defense. Those beer-drinking, fornicating, lying, cheating, obscene, and profane buddies whom you think will make your stay in hell a pleasant place to be are in the same boat as you. And guess what's happening? That boat is sinking under the weight of their own sin load into the sea of fire from which there's no escape. There's a sting to death. It's not pleasant. And so the first argument for resurrection is that if there is no resurrection, Christ is still dead. And if he is dead... Death, the last enemy, wins the victory and administers its sting, which is the second death, from which there is no escape. So, we're beginning to see something of the importance of resurrection. All right, second argument. What if you have heard the gospel message preached in which... Resurrection is promised and proclaimed. You've heard that as part of the message. But what if there is no resurrection after all? You heard it preached. 
but it didn't make it so. Well, answer is verse 17. Your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Ooh. What does that mean? Verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. This is getting worse. That is, they end up in heaven and hell. Heaven and hell win. So what does that make us? Verse 19. If only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied. And pitied more than all men. Why? Saying, well, you're just a pitiful lot of idle dreamers to believe in something that isn't real. Let me ask this question. Does faith, just think about this now, does faith save? Let me ask the second question. What if your faith is in the wrong thing? What if you believe a lie? Does sincerity correct the problem? Does it change the fact that false or wrong choices were made? Is correct doctrine or teaching essential? And if it is correct doctrine, won't it have substance to it? Won't it be the whole truth and nothing but the truth? So help us God. Well, there are literally millions, and I mean that, millions and millions of people who have faith. They have faith in themselves. They have faith in idle concepts of God. They have faith in human tradition and protocols. They have faith in their religion. They believe. And no one could call them or accuse them of being infidels. They are believers. But the object of their faith is not the God of the Bible, nor Jesus as the only Savior of sinners. They've chosen a different route, which they believe will still lead them to heaven. <coughs> Some have heard the good news of the gospel, that God has sent His holy, sinless, and perfect Son to bear the judgment of sin for all who believe, but they know better. They know better. They believe that the objects of their faith are as viable as Jesus. They ignore Jesus' exclusive claim, which is this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. They've heard that, John 14, verse 6. But they don't believe that. Or again, Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. John 10, verse 3. Unfortunately, Jesus also stated this reality. I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, 
but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. John 10, verse 1. <coughs> in other words, he's a rebel. He's not a welcome guest. Now I have to ask, why would anyone try to sneak into heaven some other way when the gate, in this case Jesus, is there with open arms, willing to receive all who believe in him? Why would they do that? How's come they can't see? How's come they can't believe? There's Christ, the doorway, open arms. Come unto me, all ye that are laden down and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to me, come to me, come to me. Why don't they do that? Paul answers in 1 Corinthians 4, Verse 3 and 4. If our gospel is veiled, if it's, if it's masked, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Okay, why? The God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Why would Satan do such a terrible thing? Jesus answers, he was a murderer from the beginning and holding not to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he's speaking his native language. He is a liar and the father of lies. John 8 verse 44. And Peter says, be self-controlled and alert your enemy. Oh, here's another enemy. Death's an enemy. Now I got another enemy. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 1 Peter 5 verse 8. As our enemy, one of the things Satan does is to chain us to a fear of death. John says, He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. 1 John 3, verse 8. And the writer of Hebrews says of Jesus, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For this reason, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins <clears throat> of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. What all this is saying is that there is a battle going on, folks, and it is between Satan and Jesus and it's over the souls of men. 
Through our limited sight, it may look at times like evil is winning. But the die was set when Satan was expelled from heaven in his rebellion. Yes, Satan was in heaven and expelled. Let me read it for you. There was war in heaven. Michael, he's the archangel. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth and his angels along with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth, woe to the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury. Why? Because he knows his time is short. Revelation 12, 7 through 12. Satan's days are short. The clock, the clock is ticking. The seasons for Satan to tempt and deceive and blind and lead men astray, they're all numbered. This makes him aggressive. This makes him furious. Not just a lion, but a roaring lion. Not just a hungry lion, but a lion ready to tear and devour its prey. Not just a lion content to eat what the Creator apportioned, but a lion seeking souls with whom to engorge himself in a blood fast. It's one of the enemies of your soul and mine. The resurrection is the final blow to the devil's scheme. The blinding he does of unbelievers is thwarted by the resurrected Christ of whom Paul writes. And I read this text earlier, but I'm going to read you the, the whole text now. The God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And if we just stop there, we'd say, Okay, that's it. It's a done deal. He's blinded the minds of unbelievers. They're never going to believe. They got this blinder on their mind. They can't see. They can't appreciate Jesus. Well, the text does, does not stop there. It goes on. Paul says, We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as what? As Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For... God who said, whew, listen, let light shine out of darkness. 
When did he say that? Anyone? A creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens, the earth, the earth was without form and void, and God said, let there be light. Now we're talking about a different kind of light here, but it's the same kind of power that's involved. So, God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Now notice the next part of this. Made his light shine in our hearts. We got a blinders on by Satan, but then you got God come along saying, let there be light. He made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Sorry, Satan. You lose. God wins. But we have this treasure, says Paul, in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God, not us. The reason it's this way is so God gets the credit for our salvation, not us. Again, the text is 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 7. Can I say it in colloquialism? Jesus ripped the blinders off. That's what he does. And he infuses the light of truth, the light of knowledge, so that people so moved can see the very glory of Christ that Satan tries to mask. You getting a hint here who's more powerful? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Let Satan do his worst. He's still going to lose. Still going to lose. Now then thirdly, that brings us to the subject of reincarnation versus resurrection. Have you ever wondered about this? Reincarnation becoming popular in the Western world through the New Age movement. It's been around for centuries, but it became popular in the Western world through the New Age movement. It has its roots in Hinduism and Buddhism. It is the teaching that all of us are on a personal spiritual journey to perfection based on a series of evolutionary changes that occur as a result of death and then re-embodiment. With every re-embodiment, the person gets to work on their karma, their sin, and make atonement through good works. And because the sin is great, it'll take a number of reincarnations, re-embodiments, to reach perfection. God is impersonal. He's a force. And Jesus is just a person who showed the way of self-purification through suffering. That's what the cross is about. That's how they interpret it. In reincarnation, there's no judge to face. There's no judgment to experience. Because the individual is working on righting the wrongs in his or her life on their own through suffering and good works. Now, it may take many lifetimes to do it, but eventually you'll get it done. So, what judge do you have to face and what penalty do you have to face? 
This is why in Eastern countries, things like poverty, sickness, suffering are viewed as pathways to perfection. And so it is not your role or my role to alleviate these things in people when we see them because they're just paying to eradicate their bad karma karma that they have accumulated in all the previous years. So actually, mm -mm -mm, you're disturbing their salvation. If you see a guy drowning in the lake, let him drown. He's paying for his sin. Oh, he'll come back and pick up where he left off. But if you go out there and rescue him, you're just prolonging the payment being made. This explains, brethren, why there's not a lot of hospitals, and medical treatment, and care for the elderly and the sick and so forth in these Oriental countries. It's a matter of their religion. Oh, by the way, part of the punishment might be that you're reincarnated as a lower life form. You, you could come back as an animal, depending on how wicked you've been. Now you're really starting low, and you've got to work your way up. I don't know how an animal atones for sin. I'm not quite sure about that. I lost my cat this week. I loved Addie. She was Dad's cat. And she was a loving cat, but as loving as she is, and as nice a cat as she was, before she died of liver disease... I wouldn't want to come back as Addie. There's something about Addie that's different than where I am now. I'm here. I have a soul. Addie does not. Now all of this, this whole thing of reincarnation, has the markings of Satan upon it. Listen again to their main beliefs. No personal creator to whom I am responsible. No judgment. No hell. You save yourself by being good and making your own atonement for sin. You evolve spiritually from a bad person to a good person through multiple reincarnations until you reach perfection until you become like God. The great personal delusion of Satan was this, and I'm going to quote his own words. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost height of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Isaiah 14, verse 13 and 14. <coughs> and that was his boast. And that was his downfall. God said, oh, will you? <laughs> You're out of here. And there was war in heaven, and he was kicked out. So much for, I will, I will, I will, I will. God said, well, I'll tell you what I will do. 
and he was gone. Now there, I'm going to give you one verse in the Bible that lays the death blow to the whole teaching of reincarnation. You only need this one verse. There's lots of them, but I'm just going to give you this one, and it's this. Hebrews 9, verse 27. Man is destined to die once. Got that? That's the first part of the verse. Man is destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. Pretty clear, isn't it? Die once means no multiple lives and multiple deaths. No reincarnations. To face judgment means there is a personal God before whom all must stand and give an account. And if you're not righteous at the first appearance, there will be no second chance or third chance or fourth chance. Die once and after that, the judgment. That's reincarnation. And one verse of the Bible lays it in the dust. Now contrast this to resurrection. In resurrection, Jesus has done battle with your sin. Peter writes, he himself, that is without your help, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You didn't do it. Jesus did it. This payment for sin is full and final. Let me read. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. I'm set free in Christ. I don't have to keep going through reincarnations and try to work up my holiness. Romans 8, verse 1 and 2. Colossians 2, 13 states, He forgave us all our sins. There's no karma left for me to atone for. Or again, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Romans 4, verse 25. Resurrection's part of that, you know. And so then, as we contemplate giving an account before God in the day of judgment, Paul writes, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpass, surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him, in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Philippians 3, verses 8 through 11. <coughs> That's a far cry different from reincarnation. The 
burden is all placed on Christ. And not only that, his shoulders are big enough and strong enough to carry the burden. Now in closing, let's consider just a couple of statements on resurrection's joy. Number one, resurrection signals the defeat of death through Christ. Remember we started this by saying we have an enemy and it's called death. You never thought of death being your enemy, but it is. If it wins, it's your enemy. If, it's, if it can apply its sting, and you can't get away from it, it's your enemy. Look at verses 20 and following of our text. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruit of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, Jesus. For in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. For each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those belong who belong to him. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he, God, has put everything under Jesus' feet. Jesus told a parable one day. It's a parable of the weeds. Say, he told a parable about weeds? Yeah, he did. And uh, they were sown in a farmer's field with some good seed. After teaching that crops are sown in one form, a buried seed, and they come alive in a different form, a stalk, a shoot, a vine, Paul applies the analogy to us. Look at verse 42 and following. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown, think about being planted six feet under. We often talk that way. The body that's sown is perishable, it's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Christ, a life-giving spirit. Just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Pretty clear. What goes into the ground, so we're thinking about resurrection now, what goes into the ground, and you've all been to funerals, you've all seen this. Paul is saying, that's not what comes out of the ground. So if you're thinking, ooh, that body that's put in the ground, it, it, it's weak, it's perishable, it's going to decay, it's going to rot, it's going to end up being bones and eventually the bones won't be there. I don't want that coming back. That's the resurrected body I'm going to get. No. Paul's saying, you don't understand. We, we're planting one thing, but we're harvesting something different. Again, in Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21, our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, 
by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform, here it is, our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Oh, that's a different light on things, isn't it? That's great. His glorious body. Remember how as he appeared to the disciples and as he appeared to the women at the tomb and so forth. There was no decayed, rotting body. His body didn't even see decay. But that body had some marvelous traits about it if you read the scriptures of his, of his life. For one thing, it glowed as light like lightning. For another thing, it could pass through locked rooms. Disciples shivering in the upper room in fear that the authorities were coming to get them next. Jesus appears in their midst and said the doors were locked. Can you dematerialize and materialize? Say, so, well, I thought Superman could do that. Yeah, but that's just fiction. This is reality. That's the first thing. The first joy is that de death is defeated in the resurrection. Second is this. Resurrection signals the end of our sinful world and the beginning of the new. Look at verse 24. Then the end will come when he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Well, the disciples asked Jesus to explain that parable of the weeds. And here's what he said. The one who sowed the good seed out in that field is the son of man, me. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. So now picture what he's saying here. The world, he's saying, is made up of good seed that I've got out there sown and it's growing. But then the devil came along and he sowed his seeds among the good. Think back to the garden. Think back to the first temptation, the first sin and so forth. And what has resulted in all of that. So now we have a world that's mixed. Good seed, bad seed. Sons of Christ, sons of the evil one. He goes on. The harvest. Oh, you got all this kind of crop growing together. The harvest is the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. Sometimes it's hard to find the righteous because there's so many weeds. You know that in your garden. Did you ever go out looking for something in your garden? You say, I thought I put cucumbers in here somewhere. I know they're down there somewhere. 
And you have to sort through the weeds to try to find the good stuff. And that's what he's saying. The angels will come and take, weed God's garden. And then the good seed will shine. You'll be able to see it. They will weed out the kingdom, everything that causes sin and who, those who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has an ear, perk up. Let him hear. Matthew 13, verses 37 and following. He's saying, people, listen. There's two kind of people in the world. There's weeds and there's the good crop. There's children of Christ, children of God, and there's children of the evil one. Listen up. Who are you? What are you? And then he talks about the new world as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. And that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, writes Peter. And the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, God's promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, a home of righteousness. No weeds. No evil. So then, dear friends, writes Peter, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. 2 Peter 3, 12-14. Make your peace with the Creator through Christ and do it today. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. We may, the devil may think that this world is his and belongs to him, but Jesus is not so. The world is the field and it's my field. It's my world. Yeah, I see his, the enemy has planted weeds among the, among the good crop, but I have a way of dealing with them. He has a way of dealing with all sinners. May the Lord grant to us the faith to believe in Christ. And that sin to which you are changed, just, hey, let it go. Let it go. Repent of it. Renounce it. Say, Lord, I've never thought about this. I never thought about you as being the one that can defeat death and hell and all these enemies of my soul. Please grant me faith. May that be your prayer this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and praise you for it. Thank you that it's true. Thank you for such a glorious Savior. He's, he comes, came to our world to do battle with this enemy of our souls and even to defeat that last enemy, which is death. How is it defeated? In resurrection. In the eternal life that we are to, to get. The new body that's going to be like your glorious body. And then we get to live eternity in that new body that doesn't sin anymore in a new place, a new heaven, and a new earth, wherein only righteousness is. There no evil 
There's no weeds. Lord, we long for that day. But right now, we have the opportunity to testify to our friends and loved ones of the great grace of Jesus and his forgiveness that's available to all who will repent and believe. Grant them that faith. I know they don't have it. Grant them the repentance. I know they don't have that either. People love their sin. They don't want to change. Feels too good to sin. Oh, but much better to not to sin and to know forgiveness and to know Christ and to have the hope of glory become real. Thank you for each one here today. Bless and honor your word in Jesus' name.